Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new model for cooperation in the defense industrial base. There are examples where they have started to build systems according to this open standards baseline. New questions around the race to secure the Pentagon's networks. Without that transparency, without that collaboration with industry, folks are left wondering what exactly are they going to have to bring to the table? How should they budget for it? How should they plan for it? And a data strategy to get NASA to the moon and beyond. That's basically to identify, to catalog, uh, all the FAIR principles around data, um, to have a good inventory of what's there, and to connect into those data sources for better decision-making for our leadership. It's Monday, September 27th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at 4 p.m., you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Federal employee pay for the September 12th through 25th pay period would show up on schedule even if it's after October 1st, according to new shutdown guidance from the Office of Personnel Management. The guidance says agencies will cancel paid time off for employees on furlough during a possible shutdown. Employees can do up to four hours of, quote, orderly shutdown activities under the guidance. Contractors have a December 8th deadline for employees to get COVID-19 vaccines under guidance from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. The guidance calls for enforcement of guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about mask wearing and physical distancing on site. The guidance says in areas of, quote, high or substantial community transmission, contractors have to wear masks, but they don't in areas of, quote, low or moderate community transmission. More on these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The lineup's filling up for Cyber Week, October 18th through the 22nd. CyberScoop has more than 40 events on the calendar already for the Cyber Festival. Lots of top leaders from tech, education, and government will be there both digitally and in person. You can learn more and sign up now at cyberweek.com. Companies that have a stake in the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System and the military's Joint All-Domain Command and Control say they and their peers have to get on board with open systems to make the programs work. That concept, of course, is very different than how most defense companies are used to working with DOD. Todd Harrison's Director of Defense Budget Analysis and Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This really would represent a paradigm shift in the way that big technology companies and big defense companies work with the Pentagon, wouldn't it, Todd? Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, it would. It absolutely would be a a shift in the paradigm. But a lot depends on the details, right, and how you implement it and how far you go in terms of keeping, um, you know, systems, you know, with an open baseline and open interfaces. And I think that's going to be the key for DOD is striking the right balance because companies need to be able to protect their own intellectual property. Uh, they have to be able to protect that in order to monetize the uh, investment that they put into these systems. But then at the same time, you want to make it so that DOD can manage the overall system of systems and network of networks, however you want to call it, so that things are interoperable and so that they aren't tied to a particular contractor whenever they need to upgrade or change out systems in the future. The three companies represented at the Air Force Association's uh, 2021 Air, Space, and Cyber Conference were Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and L3 Harris. 
according to my colleague Billy Mitchell. The report is up on fedscoop.com, and it's linked in the show notes today at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Richard Stapp, Corporate Vice President, CTO at Northrop Grumman, saying, I think defense industry is going to have to look at new models of how they look at that data and that data sharing regarding the stack, the intellectual property, and all of that. Do we know what those new models could look like, Todd, or is that something that we're exploring for the very first time? Is this a brave new world for that kind of exploration and thinking? Well, you know, it's not entirely new, uh, even for defense. You know, there are examples where they have started to build systems according to this open standards baseline. I, I mean, you know, from what we understand, although the details are classified, the B-21 is supposed to be built uh, to this open mission system architecture. Uh, and, you know, the various other weapon systems. We've experimented this with this in the past. The Joint Tactical Radio System jitters. Uh, was intended to, you know, have uh, an open interface radio, um, sorry, software defined radios, where you could download a different waveform and you weren't tied to a specific contractor to develop that waveform to run on the radio, they could run, you know, waveforms from multiple contractors or things that you haven't, haven't even been invented at the time the radio was being built. Now, the jitters program for those who remember it over about the past two decades, had a lot of problems. And a lot of those problems stemmed around DOD trying to define this software communications architecture uh, in a way that industry could actually build to. And that took a long time uh, and it caused a lot of delay in programs. But I think the department has has or should have learned a lot at experience. And of course, there's plenty of examples in the commercial sector of operating this way. Uh, you wrote recently under the title Battle Networks in the Future Force, a framework for debate. Perhaps the most important insight this framework yields, the framework uh, of this, this battle network concept, is that the battle network of the future is not one network. It's a network of networks. That gets, I think, to the model that you just laid out there about jitters. What didn't work about that and what could work better or what needs to work better about JADC2? Well, a few things went wrong with the jitters program, and I was, uh, you know, working and things related to that program all the way back to 2003. So I've seen a lot of this from the inside uh, as, you know, government CETA support contractor. One of the things that went wrong is they came out with the policy of everything had to be jitters SCA compliant, all radios at all frequencies. Uh, they came out with that prematurely. Uh, and they weren't ready with the standard, and it actually disrupted a lot of ongoing programs. So, you know, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is they centralized the jitters program and a single joint program executive office uh, that wasn't ready to handle it. And, you know, ultimately, each military service has its own budget and manages its own budget. And now they were interdependent on one another, yet they couldn't control each other's budgets and timelines. Uh, so you ended up with a lot of issues where different parts of the jitters program were not synchronized with the other programs that depended on them. Uh, and so that's kind of how it started to fall apart. And then there were some things that it was a good idea but in practice, the technology just wasn't mature enough yet. In some cases, processors just weren't fast enough to do what they were being asked to do. Uh, and things just ended up not working. 
and so, you know, that was a, a, a big problem with the program. They just technological maturity. It wasn't quite ready uh, for prime time when they were trying to push ahead. So, you know, hopefully we learn from some of these lessons, but I think the biggest one right now that the department has got to grapple with, and this is going to be part of a, my next paper in the series on battle networks. They're going to have several papers in the series uh, that I'm already working on right now. But, you know, the next big lesson is how you organize this and how you develop the acquisition strategy is critically important. Uh, you know, and you can't, you can't try to over uh, define this and do the engineering and policy, you got to provide enough flexibility that the engineers can do the engineering. And yet, I bet if we gave truth serum to those three industry executives that were on stage that Billy writes about, they would say the Defense Department historically over time has been overly prescriptive about writing requirements, not, ha uh, not have been open-minded about coming to industry and saying, here's the solution we want. Tell us how to get the solution instead of meeting this this checklist of things that have to be in it. That's exactly right. You know, there is a long history of uh, the department being over prescriptive. And what they really have to focus on from a DOD perspective is what is the interoperability you want? And don't say that everything needs to be interoperable because that's not true. You know, not everything needs to talk to everything else, right? There is a price to interoperability. Uh, there are trade-offs you're going to have to make in the, in the design of things so that they'll be interoperable. So you've got to pick and choose which types of interoperability are most important to you uh, and prioritize those and just tell industry these things have to work together, period. Go make it happen. You talked about the lack of control among the services budget-wise and program-wise a moment ago. We're almost out of time, but I note same thing exists today with JADC2. We have Project Overmatch, Project Convergence, ABMS. What does that merger wind up looking like that looks different than what we've seen before that didn't work? Yeah, it's too soon to tell that there is going to be a difference, quite frankly. Um, yeah, there are a lot of different efforts going on related to JADC2 right now. And don't forget that the joint staff has a cross-functional working team uh, that is trying to set the strategy for JADC2. Ultimately, what it boils down to is the services, the military departments, they have budget authority, right? And that's where control is. The ultimate power in DOD is budget authority. And so that's what you've got to build your organizational structure around and your acquisition strategy around. It's just accepting the fact that the services have independent budget authority and how are you going to incentivize them to work together to build a system from the ground up that is interoperable with our legacy systems, is interoperable across services and domains, and not to be forgotten, we've got to maintain and enhance our interoperability with allies and partners. Todd Harrison, we'll have to leave it there. I want to come back and talk about allies and partners, though. I look forward to that conversation. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely. We'll do it. You can find a link to the story on standards for JADC2 and Todd's work on the DOD network in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, the data plan for the next moonshot. The chief data officer at NASA, Ron Thompson, will tell you what's coming next for him. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. Three industry groups have a six-step plan to help the Defense Department help companies prep for the CMMC model. 
Those steps include standardizing the way the department categorizes information and how contract regulations apply to the program. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Stephanie, welcome. You and your colleagues at ITI and the NDIA are writing to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, about this issue. Why is CMMC so top of mind for you and for your members? Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, and, and thanks for asking to speak about a, a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. As you know, the Professional Services Council is comprised of more than 400 member companies. Many of them support uh, across the government uh, the federal requirements, and a big piece of that is cybersecurity, and it's a growing piece, as it should be. And one concern that we've had at the Professional Services Council is ensuring adequate transparency with large federal departments like the Department of Defense and allowing some collaboration with industry in this fast-paced IT environment. With CMMC beginning a, a what is initially termed a, a, an assessment but has really become a deep review of its requirements and its missions, without that transparency, without that collaboration with industry, folks are left wondering what exactly are they going to have to bring to the table? How should they budget for it? How should they plan for it? And so right now, because the uh, assessment or review has been going on now for six months, it's a great time for the government to really share what they're thinking. And unfortunately, they haven't been. All right. We have a link to the letter that you sent in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And we have uh, my conversations with Gordon Bitco from ITI, Corbin Evans from NDIA, talking about a couple of these other issues that you raise at thedailyscooppodcast.com also. A um, couple of these I wanted to ask you about. One of the things that one of the six items that you write in this letter uh, is something the department should look at is standardizing and improving the marking practices for DOD CUI requiring protection. What's going on there that is a concern to you and your colleagues? Sure. Just by way of background, CUI is controlled unclassified information, and that runs the gamut from you know things that people would barely think should be sensitive to things that just uh, stop short of full-on classification levels of, of um, confidential secret and top secret. And DOD had entered into a registry located at the National Archives and Records Administration categories of CUI. And the intent, I believe, was for contracting officers and folks who, um, government officials who, who put out contracts and, and solicitations to specify which categories they were talking about in that particular contract and the performance thereof. That would be great. Unfortunately, what the defense industrial base partners have seen is that folks will come out and say they have to protect all 100 plus categories of CUI. And that's just not um, feasible. I will also say um, lack of guidance on that front for companies that may actually generate CUI. They don't know how to classify it once they generate it within the private sector and what DOD wants protected. So this is an area that's very murky should seem fairly straightforward to address by saying which categories of CUI should be relevant to the performance of a particular contract, but we're not getting that guidance. We're not getting that set of requirements from contracting officers. And instead, I think they're pressing the easy button and saying all categories have to be protected when that's not actually relevant. 
you write, without this critical information being defined to industry, there's a great risk of goal misalignment, which could waste scarce resources at best and leave open vulnerabilities and sensitive systems at worst. What is something that would work for the defense industrial base to triage this, Stephanie? To triage this, it's really a back and forth. It's that collaboration and transparency I mentioned earlier, which is to say, you know, we want to know from an industry perspective what needs to be protected. No kidding, what is critical for the government to achieve mission success? And what is not helpful is the government to say, that's not it, or that's not it. They have to define what is it and what does it take for industry. That's the only way a partnership would work efficiently and effectively. And I would say, without that guidance, some industry partners are a little bit reluctant to do business with the government because they don't want to put their foot you know, on the wrong side of the line that is in, a sand, in the sand, so to speak. All right. Uh, the, another element I wanted to ask you about is evaluating and clarifying remaining policy and process questions around the implementation of DFARS. Uh, DFARS is a tricky in just about any time that you step into it, Stephanie. I imagine this is no exception. It's true. And I think, um, you know, streamlining, and we're talking specifically uh, about three specific regulations, and they are ones that talk about covering, um, safeguarding covered defense information and incident reporting. It's talking about NIST standards for uh, DOD assessments, and it's talking about the CMMC requirements itself. You know, the Department of Defense asked for comments on uh, the proposed rule more than, oh, I would say almost a year ago. And industry did whatever it could to submit comments to that request for comments. Um, and now it seems that, you know, we're not entirely sure what they've done with those comments. And again, this is a fast paced sector and things have changed in the last 12 months. So evaluating, clarifying remaining policy and process requirements, what we'd love to see is for DOD to issue another proposed rule as opposed to jumping all the way to the end to a final rule because they really need the benefit of, of industry insight into what's gone on in the last 12 months. I have a quick final question for you, Stephanie. The first one of these, I, I asked Corbin Evans about this one, but I want to get your input too. The first one you uh, all submitted together was regularly engaging with industry. What does that regular engagement with industry from the Defense Department or from the CMMC board in particular look like to you? What are they giving to industry? What is industry giving back to them? What are they asking from industry? How is industry answering and so on? used to have, and I'll say we, um, meaning the associations, uh, would have, we have currently monthly calls with DOD industrial policy. And during those calls, you've got a wide range of some, I would say 10, 12, maybe even 15 associations or other organizations talking directly with DOD officials about concerns. We would need something along those lines. I think regularly scheduled session with folks who are cognizant and responsible for the CMMC, bo uh, CMMC body of work. I would say that you mentioned the CMMC accreditation body, which is an organization under contract to DOD to sort of provide accreditation to companies about whether they meet these CMMC requirements. Uh, that is not a DOD. They don't speak with the um, authority of a DOD official. And I think engaging directly at a high enough level with folks actually, you know, civil servants or political appointees or somebody with authority at DOD 
to talk through some of these issues is critical for mission success. Would it be enough if DOD or if maybe there's a legislative remedy required, but if that person at the board had that authority delegated by DOD or something like that, Stephanie, or does it have to be uh, uh, an official U.S. government employee? Are you, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about maybe um, sort of deputizing somebody on the CMMCAB. I think it would need to be a DOD official because again, we're talking about contract requirements and it's very, it's an inherently governmental position to be able to talk with authority about contract requirements. So as much as I appreciate everything the CMMCAB has done, um, I, I think it's probably a little bit of a stretch to say an organization under contract to DOD could perform that function. Stephanie Castro, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. You can read that letter and more about CMMC in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Tuesday's program, the balancing act for agency managers as employees come back to the office. The leader of the National Treasury Employees Union, Tony Reardon, is on Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 p.m. Tuesday on fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. NASA collects data every day about the Earth, the solar system, and lots more. Collating and curating that data is part of the agency's data strategy. Ron Thompson is the chief data officer at NASA. On the newest edition of Building Data-Driven Government, sponsored by Dell Technologies, he tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash about that data strategy. We are um, actually taking an approach, an enterprise approach, to how the data is collected uh, from a purpose-built perspective and actually leveraging interoperability among data. And we have our, our data strategy that we uh, put into place about 18 months ago. And that's basically to identify, to catalog uh, all the fair principles around data, um, to have a good inventory of what's there, and to connect into those data sources for better decision-making for our leadership. You know, I, I like to describe it to, uh, to provide better hindsight, insight, and foresight of how the agency runs. I like that analogy. Um, next, what must agencies think about in the post-pandemic environment? Uh, not that we're out of it quite yet, um, but as we move forward to really manage and secure and analyze data that's increasingly taking shape at the edge of agencies' enterprise environments. Yeah, I think the play here is, you know, we have the internal focus from from each of our perspectives, right? That's really, um, you know, how do you organize? How, how do you uh, how do you identify? How do you make sure that uh, you have uh, the proper culture that that really allows for that data sharing to happen? Um, so what we're doing is uh, is we're standing up an enterprise data platform, and that basically is uh, to to have that functionality for for the identification and interoperability. But we're seeing a greater play at NASA as well. And and I'll just take uh, why the, the example of climate data. You know, we're seeing uh, you know NASA collects a vast amount of information about our Earth. Uh, we're seeing a great opportunity for uh, collaboration with other federal agencies around the space as 
well. So we're, you know, that that's a little bit different, I think, than than how some uh, programs work. That's a little bit different than how some agencies work. So really uh, identifying the areas where we can share, where it makes sense. So um, that that's uh, not as easy as it seems, though, because, uh, you know, you have to have a good foundation of identifying how you're going to identify uh, or, or how you're going to actually uh, uh, name a particular data, you know, data, uh, data attribute, right? So, so that, that's sort of like the uh, European Union. I liken it to how the European Union works, right? So a lot of up, upfront uh, collaboration with external agencies, why you collect it, what it's used for. And, and we see a, a world, I think, that, that we can achieve greater uh, interoperability among all the federal agencies, but again, with commercial partners as well. Well, it certainly argues for the importance of data governance in government. Uh, next, um, kind of more at the infrastructure level, how is the expected growth and distributed nature of digital workloads reshaping the need for agencies to, you know, think about prioritizing their investment priorities around on-prem, uh, hybrid, and public cloud environments? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Why? and something that we're, we're really... Um, really taking a very close look at because we can't continue to, um, you know, I, I think I saw a stat recently that uh, uh, 80% of the data that we have is is replicated. So just think mm -hmm. about that, um, you know, in the scale of, of, of just, just NASA's one agency, right? So uh, we do need to take an approach where we are not purpose building, um, um, and and how we can collectively come together in 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 uh, instead of building these things on prem in house we're seeing that the cloud we're seeing that that sort of that hybrid uh, uh, um, opportunity to to sort of share and and you know I, I like to sort of describe it as as collect once use use many <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. so so uh, you know a lot of our observation data we do. We do uh, collect for uh, very specific reasons. So, but but also other other programs may uh, be able to use it, and then other programs may be able to to uh, need to collect that same attribute. So we are really taking a very close look at uh, how we can behave, not just uh, from a myopic point of view, but behave as an enterprise point of view, because we are seeing the sustainable uh, resources, or the resources that we have right now are not sustainable working in the old ways, right? So we do have to take a, a more, more distributed way of how we collect, analyze, and disseminate our information. You can find a link to the full video for Ron Thompson in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thank you for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it every day. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put this show together. The entire Scoop News Group team contributes. What's next for the government shutdown and the back to the office movement after COVID on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.